Say, Lafayette 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Hope everyone had a safe and happy holiday. It's nice to be back. Yeah, we're moving past the Thanksgiving break. Uh, Bill, is that a nutcracker I see behind you in, in, in your home? It is uh, also wow. a small a small Christmas tree, a uh, very small yeah. one. So um, great. We're putting up a, a, an actual one, but that's our, our, our little one. Yeah, like garlands are everywhere. It's I mean, great. I have my nutcrackers um, out as well. I actually have a nutcracker collection. Weird little fact about me, but yeah, I'd love to see it. We 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 got to get into that later. Uh, but we do have a but but we do have a busy and interesting show for you this week. Um, I had a really interesting talk with uh, Danny Cass, who is our senior IP reporter, about uh, obviously everybody knows that there is a uh, COVID vaccine that is somewhat imminent. A bunch of companies are very far along in the trial process, and obviously for our purposes, um, one thing that's implicated by that is the rush of patents that will accompany that vaccine. And she yeah. wrote a really cool story about all the sort of permutations that will come with uh, what we hope to be a soon arriving uh, COVID-19 vaccine. So stick around for that for sure. It was a really interesting talk with her. But but before we get to that, we're going to talk about uh, a few interesting news stories up top, starting with uh, the Supreme Court and some interesting interplay between uh you know the role of the attorney versus the role of the uh you know the client and and how people should be criticized for that but but get us through get us into what we're talking about at the Supreme Court this week. Yeah, there's lots lots of angles to this one, but at bottom it's a really interesting case that the Supreme Court heard heard arguments uh for this week and it's a case that basically looks to use an 18th century law to hold Nestle and Cargill accountable for child slavery in their foreign supply chains. Um, the justices, when they were hearing the case, asked a lot of questions to both sides about the the. It, it, there's a lot of different issues about the the international reach of U.S. laws, and more importantly, the limits uh, of sort of the ability to hold corporations liable for human rights violations that are sort of far away but still connected to the way they do business. It was super interesting. The other thing that Bill was alluding to, though, is that the case also generated a lot of discussion over the participation of Neil Katyal, who is a former acting solicitor general, former pro se guest, who in the Trump era has emerged as something of like a progressive legal hero. Uh, but here on Tuesday, he was arguing for companies. He was arguing that companies, corporations should not be on the hook for these types of uh, atrocities that occur overseas. So there were lots of different thorny elements to unpack here. Super interesting case. Yeah, I can't wait to actually talk about that aspect of it, the attorney aspect. But before we yeah. get there, we got to lay the groundwork. Um, give us just the the overview of what this case is all about. Yeah, so the case is, the, the, the facts are pretty simple. The case has been going on for about 15 years, and it was brought by six adult citizens of the nation of, of Mali. And uh, they are known only as John Doe's in the case, but they allege that they were taken from their country, from Mali, as children, and they were forced to work on cocoa farms uh, on the Ivory Coast, sort of harvesting you know, cocoa beans and things like that. And they say they worked like 12 to 14 hours a day. They were given very little food. They were beaten for falling back on their work. It is by almost any definition, you know, chattel slavery, in, in, in this case of, of, of children. Very, very heinous. So in their suit, these men say that 
Cargill and Nestle um, basically aided and abetted child slavery, aided and abetted that conduct for years by sourcing from farms that use that child labor. They say they either they either knew or they should have known that this stuff was going on. They profited from it. And, um, you know, they, they are looking to hold them accountable. The companies, of course, say um, that they have taken steps to combat child labor. They, they do a vigorous parsing of their supply chains. They claim to have uh, done nothing wrong. So those are the basic claims. But the case is going to come down to the way that the justices read something called the Alien Tort Statute, and that is a law that dates all the way back to eighteen, or all the way back, all the way back to seventeen eighty nine. And as you might guess, a law that old has been through uh, a number of interpretations, and the court is now grappling with it again uh, here in twenty twenty. I love a case that. Uh... You know, it's obviously very interesting in in present day and and deals with very you know difficult issues as you just explained. But it's also going to take us back on this history lesson to yeah, a statute going all the way back to 1789. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, t- walk us through you know what the deal is with this law and how it's coming into play here. Yeah, you'll I like you say I I, I hope you'll indulge me a little bit of a history lesson. I, I I'll try not to get too professorial, but it's pretty important to understand where it originated as to how, and then how it's being used now. So like I said, the law was passed in 1789 to bring the newly independent American Republic into compliance with what's known as the Law of Nations. This is sort of an, an international set of norms. It forms the basis of what we now know to be sort of public international law. And the law, the Alien Tort Statute, allows foreign citizens to sue in U.S. court for breaches of international law. So when it was passed... Most scholars agree it was it was meant to refer to cases of like literal piracy, like on the high seas. Hell yeah. Or, yeah, or attacks on diplomats or things like that. It's meant to say like if you if some kind of atrocity is occurring overseas and the the court where that occurred uh, is not sufficient to handle a claim like that. The alien tort statute gives you a venue in U.S. courts to pursue that claim. So it mostly sat dormant and didn't get used a whole lot until the 1980s when plaintiffs began pursuing it as a way to prosecute human rights violations abroad. Um, now, uh, efforts to use it against corporations had been pretty difficult because the Supreme Court has actually issued a couple of rulings about the scope of the alien tort uh, statute in uh, the last couple years. Most notably, uh, a few years ago, it said that foreign companies are not subject to the law. So the idea of like if like you you can't I think it was it was a case that involved Royal Dutch Shell or uh, there there have been a couple other ones that bubbled up where it was like you're already dealing with a a foreign citizen the justices have said it doesn't apply to foreign corporations there must be sort of some some sort of U S nexus and then they kind of left it uh, unresolved from there so we already have this limitation um, on using it to go after foreign companies and during Tuesday's arguments Nestle and Cargill both argued that that exemption should also be extended to U.S. companies as well. So we are now saying that here's a law meant to hold accountable those who commit international atrocities. And we now have major corporations arguing that all corporations, foreign and domestic, should be excluded from the law. Oh, that's a pretty bold, you know, way to take it. It really takes the teeth out of using this law for the human rights purposes. How did the, the Supreme Court justices react? Yeah, it was it was very interesting. They were they were pretty alarmed, the ones who spoke on it. So 
Sonia Sotomayor at one point told uh, said that Nestle and Cargill's argument, quote, boggles my mind. Uh, Elena Kagan pressed the company's attorney, like I said, former Solicitor General Neil Katyal. We're going to talk about him in a second. She she basically talked. She, she really pushed him on the limits of his argument because it's pretty undisputed that you can hold individuals accountable for um you know, supporting atrocities like child slavery and things like that. That's kind of uncontroversial. She pressed him on that and it kind of steered us into this, that old sort of legal quagmire of the distinction between corporations and people. This is, uh, this was the question, this was the questioning from Kagan on that. She said, quote, if you could bring a suit against 10 slaveholders, when those 10 slaveholders form a corporation, why can't you bring a suit against the corporation? And Katyal responded, quote, when you go after individuals, you can often go after the true wrongdoers. Once you go after the corporate form, you get bogged down with questions of mens rea in a collective enterprise. So he's talking about it becomes difficult for corporate entities to know when they are entangled in something and when they are not. Um, so like I say, Sotomayor and Kagan uh, voiced concerns about this. It wasn't just the liberal wing, though. Alito, Justice Alito, had some really interesting questions of his own. But in the, in the course of his questioning, he also kind of hinted that it, the, the case might be on some shaky ground. It gets a little, it gets a little uh, fuzzy from there. Well, let's pick it up from there. I mean, it, it gets fuzzy, but what are some ways they could resolve this? I mean, how could they get to an answer? There were lots of different. It was a really interesting hearing, and of course, these are all publicly available now. The transcripts out there and the uh, audio transcript. If you're interested in a case like this, they go down lots of different paths. But Alito is the if you're if you're trying to read tea leaves, Alito is the easiest way to do it here because he completely echoes what Sotomayor and Kagan were saying about voicing skepticism about this idea of full corporate immunity. He told Katyal that his arguments would open up room for practices that are quote hard to take. Then he 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 indulged him in this. Kind of lengthy hypothetical, but I but 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 stick with me because it's a pretty interesting way to frame the issue. He said, quote, suppose a U.S. corporation makes a big show of supporting every cause du jour, but then surreptitiously hires agents in Africa to kidnap children and keep them in bondage on the plantations so that so that the corporation can buy cocoa or coffee or some other agricultural product at bargain prices. You, meaning Katyal, you would say that victims who couldn't possibly get any recovery in the courts of the country where they had been held should be thrown out of court in the United States where this corporation is headquartered and does business. So he is basically he's positioning it as saying you are basically slamming the door on any kind of corporate uh, accountability here. And Katyal, for his part, basically says, yes, he says the, the, the hypothetical that Alito lays out doesn't doesn't invoke. Uh, it, it isn't enough to trigger the protections of the alien tort statute. He kind of says there are a couple of other statutes that you maybe could could, uh, you know, pursue here. But uh, it becomes clear that there is I mean, people like people like to use the word bipartisan when you're talking about the Supreme Court. But from across the spectrum, a bunch of the justices are now raising reservations about this corporate immunity. But where the case gets a little tricky is that Alito voiced doubts about the factual foundation of the plaintiff's case, basically saying that beyond this question of whether corporations should be held accountable, the plaintiffs maybe haven't sufficiently tied Nestle and Cargill to these like horrendous practices. Right. So getting away from the big questions about this law, really just saying even under this law, you maybe haven't proven this or you haven't gotten to a point where we could where, you know, we could side with you. Yeah. So, I mean, just just within within moments of him. Asking, like, sort of really pressing on this issue of corporate accountability, 
he raises questions about the foundation of the case. He says, quote, after 15 years, is it too much to ask that you allege specifically that the defendants involved, the defendants who are before us here, specifically knew that forced child labor was being used on the farms or farm cooperatives with which they did business? So he's really getting down to like a basic sort of factual allegation issue. It got all the way up to the Supreme Court and he's saying, you know, I don't know if this is quite enough. From there, they go on a couple of different tangents where they're talking about they're creating new standards of liability for this 200-year-old law, which the conservative wing is, of course, not happy about. At one point, Kavanaugh kind of gestures to the idea that Congress might have more of a role uh, to make more specific punishments for corporations who do stuff like this. On balance, the, the, the smart money seems to be that this will likely be a victory for Nestle and Cargill, but on the narrow question of their specific involvement and probably like it 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 doesn't seem likely that the court will have this will, will adopt this idea that corporations should just be off the hook entirely under this law it's more it seems more likely to to settle on this narrow factual question but we'll see like i say there was lots of different thorny elements to this uh well you you can never be totally sure when they'll come out but it looks to be like something of a middle ground there which is still a victory for these for these companies so that's sort of the basic reading of where they might land on it. But we also, I've mentioned a couple times here, the involvement of Neil Katyal. And this created sort of a, it's already an interesting case, but this created like a meta conversation that really got traction on legal Twitter and sort of within people who have been following this stuff because Katyal has been a very outspoken critic of the Trump administration and an ostensible champion of sort of progressive causes. And his involvement in this case kind of, woke some people up to the realities of being a corporate lawyer, which he is, um, and uh, drove some interesting some interesting dialogue in that regard. And Bill, I mean, if you want to kind of lay that out for us, that was good. Yeah, I mean, the conversation around Katyal has pretty closely echoed a conversation that we had just a few weeks back about yeah. Jones Day representing various Republican groups on the Trump campaign in in the lawsuits that were seeking to undermine the, the, the results of the presidential election. Yeah. You know, this question, this that that is pretty foundational for the legal industry which is you know should attorneys be you know on the hook for criticism or for shaming or for whatever for the arguments they're making on behalf of their clients you know yeah. how much of this is is what the attorney themselves is doing versus what they're doing on behalf of the client and where is that line with Katiel as you have sort of ably laid out he was something of a, you know, a a capital R resistance uh, hero over these yeah. last four years for his various roles in in litigation, and he's a very outspoken guy. He's on, you know, he was on our podcast. He's on MSNBC a lot. So the discussion, I think, is tinged with something of of a betrayal, or you know, that for those on yeah. the on the progressive side of things, that how could this guy, this guy that we viewed as as sort of our guy, be arguing? You know what ostensibly seems like he's arguing, in, you know, to a certain extent in favor of child slavery. So, yes. um, I mean, that's precisely how Slate framed it. They were one of the key drivers of this discussion. Um, they wrote a story. I think it was the day of the arguments, maybe the day after with this headline. Prominent anti-Trump attorney asks the Supreme Court to let companies off the hook for <laughs> child slavery. So, wow. yeah. Not a lot of nuance to to that. I mean, the argu- the article is very good. Everyone should go read it. It's an interesting sort of look at 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 this. But you know, it very strongly came down in in the position of 
you can go after these people that should they they shouldn't be just just you know treated as if this is this is that they have no morality at all in terms of who yeah. they're representing and that you know big law firms you know people need to look at, at who their clients are and um the the article concluded with this line quote Corporate attorneys like Katyal will present a challenge for Joe Biden. Many, including Katyal, have done genuinely noble work for free while actively harming workers, consumers, and vulnerable communities for pay. Do these lawyers deserve a position in a progressive administration? I mean, it's, yeah, it's tricky, right? I mean, I I see why people would have this knee-jerk reaction to, like, how could Katyal take this kind of case when he's publicly spoken about it almost the opposite type of stances in other in other situations i should yeah. also note which i which i didn't say before because like he's he's been a most outspoken critic of the of the trump administration and this is not a case that involved this is not the, the government is not involved in this case however important to note they did file the, the justice department did file a brief as a you know as, as an amicus backing the backing the corporate position basically backing the the, the argument that katyal is making so right. even though they're not a party like they have now lined up on this side so it, it resonates even more in that regard if you're if you're looking to make that 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 criticism so the other end of this discussion was voiced by uh tom goldstein who is the co-founder of scotus blog a very well-known person in the yeah. the legal news biz um who who wrote a, a a pretty long rejoinder um to to this idea and and saying that you know the idea that that Katyal here was defending child slavery itself or was you know should be held morally responsible in some way he called it absurd um he said that that Katyal was was simply saying that this law could not be used in this specific way and yep. you know he went through to say that that he had offered alternatives for how this could be policed and and really just that that you know the opposite side the opposite position here that that there is no you know it it isn't valuable or helpful to to attack attorneys for the clients that they represent the quote from goldstein's piece this phenomenon of attacking lawyers personally for the positions of their clients threatens to be totally counterproductive, Goldstein wrote. He also noted that uh, Katyal had more often been attacked in the past uh, in the same way, but for, you know, for representing things that are traditionally progressive positions that he had been attacked by by people yep. on the right for taking mm -hmm. cases like representing uh, uh, Guantanamo Bay detainees. So um, the end quote. Katyal is one of the most prominent progressive lawyers in the country over the past four years. He just happens to work for a corporate law firm with its corporate clients. So it's, it's you know, you really have these two, I think both sides are are, are arguing in, in good faith. I think both sides have really good points here about this, but mm. it is just a really, really sticky, difficult problem that perhaps is the product of, of our very sort of hyper, you know, partisan environment that we're in now where everyone is being sucked into this idea of you have to pick sides and you have to um th this this realm that we thought i think was was neutral or somehow yeah. above the fray is now really becoming part of of those battles Twenty twenty has been a rough year, 
But we recently got a bit of good news. Several pharmaceutical companies have developed seemingly successful COVID-19 vaccines. And there's some pretty cutting-edge science right at the heart of them, which raises a very interesting question. Will these companies attempt to secure patents on these vaccines? And also, how could IP issues impact distribution to the millions of people who need it? Here to explain it all to us is Law360 senior patent reporter Danny Cass. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Uh, it's great to have you here. You wrote a really interesting story about the patent angle on the forthcoming COVID-19 vaccines. Like all of our COVID-19 coverage, it is uh, ahead of the Law360 paywall. So if this is interesting to you. I would strongly recommend everybody go check that out. But we can talk through the broad points of it here. And I think a good place to start, Danny, is um, give us a primer about like, just tell us about these vaccines that have been developed. And specifically, there's like a very interesting new scientific uh, feat at the at the root of them. So just talk us through. Obviously, it's a big deal that we have COVID-19 vaccines, but their actual construction is is pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. So there's two vaccines that have been submitted to the Food and Drug Administration for approval right now. One is by a company called Moderna, and the other is from Pfizer and a company called BioNTech. And those vaccines are a brand new type of vaccine called uh, messenger RNA, mRNA. Mm -hmm. And it's this new type of vaccine where normally when you get a vaccine, it's kind of a weakened version of the actual virus that's being placed being injected into you and your body's immune system responds to that. So you can, if you're ever exposed again, your body's prepared to fight it. Mm-hmm. What these vaccines did is manage to essentially create a way for your body to create that immune response without actually injecting you with the with the illness or with the virus. So it's it's all the benefits of a vaccine without any of the exposure to the virus. Yeah, it's super interesting stuff. And I know I know enough to know just in my we've all become sort of armchair vaccine experts as we've been feverishly reading and wanting this thing to come to fruition. I know that like trying to sort of harness the power of mRNA is like always been sort of uh, a very lively issue in the world, people who develop vaccines. But for for our purposes, whenever you hear about scientific breakthroughs of this type, you know, there's always patent attorneys who are eager to to secure protection for this uh, very sensitive and very important technology. So do we expect Moderna and Pfizer to pursue new patents for this uh, vaccine? And if so, like what specifically would it cover? Because patents are all about sort of like what specific, you know, innovation are we protecting here? So there will definitely be patents that go towards this vaccine technology. And a lot of those patents are going to go towards the kind of figuring out what the issue is that made mRNA so hard to get into a vaccine to start with. So for many years, this is this type of vaccine was something that the scientific community slowly had to accept as something that was possible a long time ago with someone put it to me as it was science fiction. Yeah. Um, When you're bringing this synthetic mRNA into your body, your immune system kind of sees that as an outside attack. And so Mm -hmm. instead of accepting it and listening to what it's telling the proteins that it's telling your body to create, instead it attacks it as an outsider and tries to get rid of it. But what Pfizer and Moderna have been able to do is figure out a way to to carry that mRNA into your body in a way that your body accepts it. So that kind of foundational delivery system is what's mm-hmm. going to most likely be in these patents. The actual mRNA specific to 
fighting COVID-19 is probably not going to be. There's a bunch of Supreme Court cases that go towards what's patent eligible and what's not. And something that's very much this natural phenomenon is most likely not going to be. So securing the patents, of course, uh, is important for the companies for a number of reasons. There are, of course, though, a lot of eyeballs on distribution um, because... Uh, in case anyone hasn't noticed, a whole lot of people have and are at risk for the disease. And so it raises a question of, you know, I mean, it, pr- presuming they obtain these patents for these very innovative processes that we've talked about, um, you spoke with people who talked about the the expectation that they may not enforce them as stringently as they might otherwise uh, do a brand new shiny patent. What can you tell us about how they will be used if they do get them? So the way that these vaccines are being distributed is a little bit unique in that the federal government has essentially purchased them all. So the government is paying Moderna $1.5 billion for 100 million doses of its vaccine, and they're Mm -hmm. paying Pfizer nearly $2 billion for 100 million doses of its vaccine. Mm -hmm. So these companies, they want to stay on the government's good side because that's where all of their income is going to be coming from these vaccines. Yeah, And we already have Moderna coming out and saying that it's not planning on enforcing its patents. It's not going to be suing over them for COVID-19 related reasons. Yeah, And then also there's the element of they don't want to look bad to the public. It would be an absolute public relations nightmare if they Mm -hmm. were seen as the company that stopped others from being able to access vaccines for a pandemic of this of this nature. Yeah. Nobody wants to be the company that is permanently associated with prolonging the COVID-19 pandemic. No, I wouldn't imagine so. And it is interesting that that we have more than just their their good faith promises. Like you say, the government is like has literally, you know, like they said, they they have purchased them or they have orders to purchase them and then presumably will aid with distribution. I know that this has been going on in my in my world, the trade world at the World Trade Organization. There's lots of discussion about waiving like global enforcement of patents and that that's getting bogged down in some international interests and stuff. Um, but uh, certainly something to keep an eye on. But even if we, um, you know, if we accept that they they won't be enforced in, in a way that that disrupts distribution of the vaccine. We've explained that this is like incredibly groundbreaking technology and the way that it works it will probably apply to many diseases and many vaccines going forward. So if they obtain patents for these processes, even if they say, OK, we won't we'll, we're, we're not going to like aggressively enforce them for covid patent experts that you spoke to said it has pretty interesting implications down the road as like sort of in the next wave of like pharmaceutical uh, patent. Yeah, those mRNA patents are going to be really vital. This is now that we have a companies coming out there and proving that mRNA vaccines work, researchers are going to want to try them very broadly for all sorts of conditions, whether mm-hmm. it's cancer, whether it's the next coronavirus, whether it's another virus. And if if Pfizer and Moderna have these kind of baseline patents, then realistically, any company aiming to make their own vaccine with them is going to need to get a license from either Pfizer or Moderna. Yeah, I mean, and they basically have it on lock. It's like they, this is like this like base technology that if you want, like, if you we want to proceed forth from that, you have to license. Yeah, exactly. And okay. they haven't promised that they're not going to enforce those their patents later on. It's just it, not for this one specific. In other use. contexts, and then I mean, is that just a matter of? I mean, I guess we, 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 we wouldn't want to crawl into their minds and know what they're going to do. But I mean, you, you talk to people about this. I mean, is it just a matter of like waiting to see sort of how aggressively they want to or how, how, how sort of stringently they'll license or anything like that? 
Yeah, it's going to be waiting to see kind of what those, what when they actually have to start offering those licenses for these patents, whether they're willing to do so and how much they're going to charge. And then if there's any kind of possible infringement and how aggressively they're going to sue. So it's going to be kind of a little bit of a wait and see to see how strongly they're going to enforce these. So it's a super interesting story. Obviously, this is like, like we've said, this is groundbreaking technology. It obviously makes it makes the vaccine turnaround so much quicker and it's a, there's a lot of eyeballs on it. Um, again, fascinating story. Everyone should check it out. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. show is something offbeat and um man we're talking about some new york stuff today i think yeah yeah i mean new york struggle is real i mean living in new york is good most of the time (laughs) uh don't tell me you're gonna have don't don't tell me we're gonna have an argument about the bodega tweet i can't do that i can't do that anymore okay but um no i mean we're talking this week about something that has i think been been sort of called the 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 New York City nightmare. The the thing the thing the things that aren't good about living here and perhaps <laughs> the things right. that people yeah. dread and uh and fear. Um so I, I thought before we got into these specific lawsuits, uh I, I I would put it to you guys. I mean, is there something when you're like I mean the classic one that everyone talks about is walking down, you know, forty second street and an air conditioner falls on your head or something like sure. that. Or, or mm-hmm. you get pushed in front of a subway car or whatever. But is there is there some like like recurring, you know, New York City dread that you guys have? Yeah, you know how um there's limited space in New York, obviously, and so all right. of the loading for various like restaurants and stores and whatever goes through those underground like pit things that are on the mm-hmm. side of the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. yeah. I am always worried, and not just for me. I worry about it when other people are with me out and about places. When those are open, very concerned that you're going to be walking down the street, not paying attention, go right down into one of those. Um yeah, and you end up time, you end like, up in like a Russian roulette game down in the basement. Like there's just crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff going on. All yeah, manner and, of untoward behaviors. And half the time, like those are closed, so you really I have know. to think about it and be paying attention. That oh, that one's open up there. So that's that's one of my nightmares. Well, that applies. Falling down an open one is certainly something, but also one opening. It's like a sharp metal door. Yeah, like if, if you get <laughs> right. if you got like clocked in the leg or something. One of my mine's like a little less, I guess, dangerous, and it's more like gross and it is that new york one thing to know about new york is that it is full of mysterious liquids that are on the <laughs> ground like it's it's i mean it, it's largely a, bri- a a a byproduct of of garbage being stored on the street right, right. but on like on a hot day if a, one of the bags is broken and there's just like mysterious Ugh. garbage juice and if i'm on uh. my phone or i'm not paying attention oh man the, and in the, the, and in the subway the subway, the subway seats are like buckets yep. so i mean yeah, you've, oh, got, yeah. you've got you've got you've got puddle yeah, I mean, I haven't been on the subway for the most part in, in several months, but like, yeah, like my my wife was always, is always very keen about like putting out, pointing out where the mysterious liquids are and to steer clear of them. Not a big fan of that. So yes, many many perils in this otherwise wonderful city of ours. Okay, so these two, uh, this is just it's just so horrible. Uh, <laughs> so the first lawsuit that we're talking about 
we'll just I, I have it titled here in the notes as Rat Pit. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. We didn't even mention wow. the, the the critters because because we're gonna we're gonna cover that right now. So a man filed a lawsuit this week uh, over something that literally sounds like a Mad Lib of these like <laughs> of these New York City horror stories. He was waiting for the bus on 183rd Street in the Bronx, so close to where I went to college, like like two blocks <laughs> away from my college. House. I was going to say that's, uh, that's 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 your old stomping ground up there. When the concrete that he was standing on, he wasn't standing on a grate or or a basement door. Uh. The concrete itself cracked open. There was a sinkhole, and it sucked him down into a chasm full of rats. Okay, <laughs> you know, I I read a bit about this when it first uh, was reported on because it's the kind of thing that I don't want to read, but then you feel compelled that you have to. Mm-hmm. It seems so unbelievable. I mean, it seems wild to think this has actually happened to somebody. Well, I mean, starting with the starting with the very simple fact of the man's name. His name was Leonard Shoulders. Yeah, I don't. I that seems. I mean, I'm not trying to laugh at the guy. He's clearly been through something horrific. But like, I that is so disturbing. <laughs> like his name is Leonard Shoulders, and he's up to his shoulders in rats. As, well, as, I mean, as, as I hate seems. to make you do this, Bill, but I think you have to give some of the details because it's a pretty gnarly like experience that he had. He was apparently so covered in rats, so deep in the rat pit. That he was apparently afraid to scream for help because he was worried that rats would climb into his mouth. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's so gross. And I I think the worst detail is actually how long this ordeal lasted. Yeah, he was in the rat pit for about 30 minutes uh, before he was pulled out by firefighters. So uh, David Blaine could never, would never. Perhaps, perhaps needless to say, um, uh, Lenny Shoulders filed a, a lawsuit this week. It's it's really just a situation where you have to sue. You got to sue somebody. Yeah, uh, sue the rats if you have to. But I um, need some recompense. Uh, so he filed suit in Bronx Supreme Court this week, suing the owners of the building for being uh, careless and reckless and negligent. Um, but also suing suing the city for failing to maintain uh, the sidewalk. He claims that there was obviously mental trauma, but also physical that he had severely hurt himself, that he had hurt his legs and his stuff. So we don't mean to laugh at the the actual physical. No, I mean, know, by all means, I'm glad he's okay. I mean, honestly, I mean, in fact, you know, uh, of course, he has to prove his claims that they were actually negligent and all of that. But if he can do that, I hope he gets really compensated for this because it sounds terrifying. So this lawsuit made a lot of people immediately call to mind another similar lawsuit that was filed last year and made the similar rounds on the on the you know the bizarre lawsuit uh, beat, uh, which we love that 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 keeps us afloat here. I have this one noted in my written in my notes as rat shower. Also oh. sounds <laughs> terrible. What what happened in that one? This one I actually don't remember. So. Uh, oh. A contractor says that he he had to be hospitalized after a ceiling collapsed and and rained rats down on him like a he was he was flooded with rats from above from a ceiling. Um, Ew. The guy is named Robert Peterson. He said his company, a contracting company, sent him into this rat cleanup job on 147th street coincidentally similar another close to another place i lived uh without the proper safety equipment and 
um, you know, that he had to go do this or he would be fired. And, you know, they didn't really set him up for success here. No. Uh, but at one point, uh, quote, the ceiling collapsed, causing rats from within the ceiling to fall on his unprotected body. Mm. Oh, God, uh, I hate it. That case was filed last year. It did settle in September. So I hope our guy, Robert Peterson, got some money for his rat ordeal. The whole thing has it spawned a conversation online and it made me wonder. And I thought I would put it to you guys. Yeah. Which of these two rat disasters oh, do you think is geez. worse? And w- which would you rather have happen okay. to you? I'd rather have none of this happen and not even sure. have not it an in answer. my brain. Not an answer. Not an answer. Okay. This is money on the table time here. I will, all right. I'll take a stance. I would <laughs> I would be more terrified by falling into the pit, I think. Because Why? you have less control. You've probably injured yourself in the fall. The guy couldn't even scream. He was so scared that rats would get in his mouth. That's awful. Yeah. I I now, in in his specific instance, yeah, like because he was up to his he, he was up to his Leonard's shoulders in rats and like couldn't move. I mean, my my first instinct was that I think I would rather fall because then there's something between like there's there's air right between me and the rats, right? Like because I'm on top of them, and maybe I could crawl out. Like now he in this instance he wasn't, but if you're in the other scenario, you face being blanketed by the rats right. and like not, and like them literally you like you could, you, you could be smothered by them. So I think I would, I think I would want to fall through the pit. Like you say, neither is ideal. That's the way I would lean though. Uh, my just answer, about you, thinking about it. My answer is that I would like to do some forensic accounting of both buildings and find out which <laughs> right. group has more money uh, for me to sue them over because both sure. of them are so horrible. I just want as much money as possible to rain down on me or for me to fall into a pile of money. And then that will make me feel good. You know, yes. I love that you're taking it that direction. Um, I don't think any amount of money would truly compensate me for that kind of like horrible event. I mean, it's the stuff that. Like, it would be in a horror movie, but then people would be like, that's too cheesy to be real. That can't be how this goes. <laughs> we should try and get these guys on the show, Peterson and Shoulders, see what sure. they're, see, see if mean, they want to tell us. They can, mo- they can have the debate themselves. They're, they're more informed on it than we, than we are. But Most anyway. of this year, I have really missed being in New York City because I'm in New Jersey, you know, yeah. living out these days where we can't gather. Um, this is you got the rats first over time. there, too, though. We do, but this is the first time we've had a segment on the show where I thought, huh, glad I'm in my apartment in Jersey City where everything is safe and there's there's nothing going to rain down or uh, me fall through the, the, the floor. So ha- happy to be here, guys. Yes, and we're happy for you. Yes, yeah, so um, I would say that's a good place to end the show, except now I'm going to go have nightmares, but we will end the show nonetheless. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Danny Cass, and our contributing reporter, Jimmy Hoover. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, even when we talk about disasters with rats, please leave us a review wherever you're listening. Uh, It helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.